Uh, my name is Frank Chi. I'm a filmmaker and I directed the recent documentary on Jeremy Lin called 38 at the Garden, now airing on HBO and available on HBO Max. While I'm watching this live, I'm like, this cannot be happening. This cannot be happening. I think it just blew all of our minds that we would see someone that looked like my cousin dominate on an NBA court. It's the most impossible thing I think I have ever witnessed in my life. When most Americans think about Asians, they think about dry cleaners, they think about IT guy. Small, passive, diminutive, unathletic. The stereotyping, the derision are so rampant. You don't think no Asian kid that's this size is going to be dunking. This is who I am. This is what I'm capable of. All you guys need to do is watch and see. This kid came out of nowhere and started balling like for real. It wasn't just Asian people talking about it. Everybody was talking about it. The Lakers came in with the idea that we're going to end this fairy tale. We're going to end it tonight. But Jeremy just kept making shots. He gave all y'all what y'all wanted to see. Is this the other plot of Space Jam? Like, whose superpowers did Jeremy Lin steal? Yo, this dude scored 38 points! At the Garden, at the Mecca. The biggest thing that Sammy brought was hope. It inspired people. The last few years, Asian Americans have just gotten beaten down. And when I think back on Lynn's sanity, I long to feel those moments of just pure joy and unity. This moment, it broke the matrix for us. Welcome to the fourth season of Factual America. We're brought to you by Alamo Pictures, an Austin and London-based production company, making documentaries about America for international audiences. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood. Each week I watch a hit documentary and then talk with the filmmakers and their subjects. This week it is my pleasure to welcome Frank Chi, director of 38 at the Garden. The film chronicles the extraordinary ascendance of point guard Jeremy Lin during his landmark 2012 season with the New York Knicks. Lin, an undrafted Harvard graduate, shocked fans, stunned his teammates, and galvanized the Asian-American community when he scored 38 points at Madison Square Garden against the Los Angeles Lakers, solidifying Lin's hot streak and the Lin-sanity craze. A decade later, Lin's stature as a groundbreaking cultural icon stands in stark relief to a recent spate of hate crimes against the Asian-American community. Join us as we talk with Frank about 38 at the Garden, Jeremy Lin, and the importance of Lin sanity 10 years later. Frank, welcome to Factual America. How are things with you? Great. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Uh, as our listeners would have heard in the intro, we're uh, talking with Frank Chi, uh, the director and writer of 38 at the Garden. Uh, it's been released out on, uh, it's, well, you can find it on HBO and uh, stream it on HBO Max. So, uh, Frank, uh, maybe to get us started, um, maybe you can tell us, what is 38 at the Garden all about? Maybe give us a synopsis. So it's about the night Jeremy Lin scored 38 points against the Lakers at Madison Square Garden back in February of 2012. It's the 10-year anniversary, right? All right. But I think that night, it stands out to me personally as like one of the two like most magical nights of my life. I always put it this way. The movie is about an impossible moment, 
right? A moment when society at large assigns to a group of people saying you can't do this. And then someone comes out of nowhere and just shatters that to pieces. Mm. And that's actually how um, the movie came about, the birth of the idea. In 2020, I was having this conversation with one of the producers of the movie, Trayvon Free, who right. uh, won an Academy Award for Best Love Action Short in 2021 with Two Distant Strangers. Yeah. So we're just constantly talking movies, but we're, t- we're talking culture. We're talking what are the moments that captivate us. And we were talking about it in the context of Obama, right? Because that is the biggest, that is the biggest impossible moment any of us have ever lived through, right? Right, right, so right. we were like, what other, what other moments feel like that? And I was like, look, man, I'm Asian. <laughs> so <laughs> there's only one answer, right? And it's Linsanity. And the way I framed it to him was the two most magical nights of my life. The first night was when Barack Obama was elected president. And the second mm-hmm. was when Jeremy dropped 38 at the garden. That's why the movie is called 38 at the garden. Right. Um, I, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and I took the train up to try to get into the game in New York. And the scalpers outside, I mean, they know how big of a game this is. They see I'm Asian, and they were trying to, like, I think the cheapest ticket I could find was, like, $700 for, like, nosebleeds near the ceiling. Oh <laughs> you know, like, you Madison Square Garden, if you sit all the way up top, like, you're yeah. basically touching the ceiling. Right. And um, I just was like, I can't afford that. I'm, like, in my mid-20s. And <laughs> I... Uh, I was like, okay, well, what, what, what can I do? Koreatown is right next door to the garden. So I just mm. was like, all right, whatever. Like I'll, I'll go to Koreatown and I'll watch it at like yeah. a karaoke bar. And um, I popped myself down at one of the bars. And um, I mean, once we started this project working with Jeremy, I told Jeremy this, I was like, looking back on it, like I don't think I actually would have traded the experience I had for even being mm. in the garden. Because mm. I was surrounded by people who look like me, who are maybe my age or a little bit older. And right. I mean, I... You've seen the movie by now, right? Like he yes, lost yes. his mind. He played out of his mind for two hours. So you had two hours of people just losing it in this bar. Right. They're screaming. They're like running around. They're like crying into their beer. I'm doing all those things too. But like, yeah. I'm also an observer. So I'm like, you know, what's going on here? Like, is it, yeah. is it the, I don't know. Like, is it the, the cathartic reaction to a wall of stereotypes that all Asian yeah. people feel like? we uh we deal with and like you see this yeah. guy break these stereotypes and like you know you're like oh my god this is amazing or is it like the fact that like all of our parents made us play piano and violin and not let us play basketball so like we have like these broken yeah. dreams and we see this guy get to live it on the world yeah. stage yeah the both like is it like is it both of these things it it was both for me i could definitely tell you that yeah. and um i tell this story to trayvon trayvon's just like are you serious like like I've never heard Linsanity like that. He was like, you know, how is that not a movie? Like Linsanity from the Asian fans perspective, how is that not a movie? And to be totally honest with you, like, I think when he first said it to me, my first reaction was to doubt it, right? The first part of the movie is called doubt. It's like this thing that all Asian Americans deal with. It's like, nobody cares. Like, I think the first thing I said to him was like, man, that was eight years ago. Nobody cares what Asian people think in this country. We're invisible. That's literally like my first reaction to this idea, which actually, you know, was a great idea. But I thought about it for a couple of weeks and I was just like, look, we don't know Jeremy at this point. We know whether he'd be down for it mm. or not. But we're like, if Jeremy is down and we tell this story, we relive this moment from the standpoint of the community, from the people that it meant the most to on the 10 year anniversary when we are going to relive our favorite Asian American memory during what is the worst time mm. to be Asian American in recent history, 
if we yeah. can talk, I mean, this is 2020 COVID it's already like in the first phase. So like, right. You know, anti-Asian violence is already starting to creep up. So I was like, look, if we can actually make a movie about this moment and reliving this moment in the context of today, then it's totally worth it. And we got to make it happen no matter what. So I, I went back to Trayvon. I was like, look, man, I made a deck. <laughs> like, let's go. <laughs> so right after that, we talked to our other producer for the movie, Samir Hernandez. Samir like, right. is a veteran sports person and like knows every athlete in America. It's crazy. Yeah. And within like one degree of separation, we were on the phone with Jeremy. Wow. Um, and Jeremy, look, you never, like, he's a symbol, but he's also a human being. You can't assume yeah. that, like, I just, I think once we love somebody who did something that we, like, just hold on to like that, we we forget that they're human. Like, we, they did something superhuman, so we forget that they're human. And I think my first couple conversations with him, I was just really struck by, like, how much during his career mm. he was, like, first of all, he was, like, one, I'm not thinking about any of the societal impact I'm making. I'm just trying to not get cut from the team. I'm trying to make it. Exactly. Right. That was his yeah. first reaction to insanity. And then the second part of it was as he had a nine year NBA career, he was just like, man, like, you know, I, I didn't want to be defined by insanity. I didn't want to talk about it anymore. I needed to mm -hmm. like, you know, write new chapters in my career. And I totally understood that, but it was good to hear that because that's the human mm -hmm. being. That's not the symbol. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then, you know, as we got, you know, more into the project and we were like, you know, like, let's not close the project up like on Jeremy. We want to close it on the community. We want to close it on the Asian American experience right. and make it as wide as possible. That's when we were all like, oh, wow. Like, you know, like this, this project really has to, it has to hit. It has mm -hmm. to, has to find a way to really, you know, like, you know like resonate with people and captivate people. I think like if you're different in any capacity, if you feel like you have stereotypes that follow you around, no matter what your background, right? You're 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 gonna be able to relate to the movies because that's that's what we focus on the most. Is like if I was to describe it without any any basketball reference whatsoever, I'd be like part one is about stereotypes, part two is about what happens when someone shatters those stereotypes on the world stage, and then part three is about today when those stereotypes have been weaponized and when they're weaponized, they turn into anti-Asian violence. Yeah, like that's what the movie really is about, and that's that's why we made it. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, that is amazing. And I, I, I must say, I do take a little bit of i I'm, I'm just glad I'm not the only one that when I started watching the film, I too was like, I didn't have, you know, I knew about Linsanity. I remember, you know, Obama's talking about it and yeah. things like that. Right. But I didn't have an appreciation for how much of an impact this had on the Asian community. Mm -hmm. You know, to me, it was the under, you know, I've obviously, I'm a big basketball fan, so I'm aware of sort of the some of those stereotypes, certainly. Yeah. But uh, um, but you know, it was the underdog story, you know, kind of thing. But not, and now ten years later, like you say, looking back on this, I mean, maybe uh, maybe putting that into perspective. I mean, you've already done that uh, very eloquently, but maybe take us back to sort of January, February, 2012, because mm. you, you said it's about to get that game against the Lakers, uh, right. Kobe led. Defending champs, right? I think. Yeah. Uh, well, no, they're I, a year removed from. They're from, a year they won in twenty ten or something. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> right. They're, right. Yeah. So, yeah, but, they're competitors. What was? I mean, uh, we've, we've been talking about Linsanity. Maybe for some of our listeners who don't know, what what was Linsanity and what was it like? It was mm -hmm. more than just this one night. It was. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was a few weeks. It was like several a weeks. string. It was like about two weeks long. I think it was yeah. like maybe ten ten games or something like that. Where. Yeah. 
he, I mean, Jeremy was undrafted, right? Let me, let me actually, let me just dis- describe it. And there's a lot of this is in the movie. Like, yeah, Jeremy was California player of the year, won the California state championship in high school, got zero recruitment offers. He then goes to Harvard on Harvard doesn't offer athletic scholarships, but he goes to Harvard because it's division one. He was three-time all Ivy league average 18 points a game. He enters the NBA draft. He feels like he killed it. He feels like he, he aced the combine, which is the workout. And um, the draft notes that come back are like lacks confidence, passes the ball, which is like, if you watch him play, like that is the opposite of what he is. So, he ends up going undrafted and then he goes into the league because the Golden State Warriors at the time were just got bought by uh, a guy named Joe Lacob, who's the current owner now. He's the one that turned that team into like the championship team. But Joe Lacob, he, his son used to play against Jeremy in high school basketball in California. So he knew how good Jeremy was and he saw past the stereotypes. He saw that like, you know, like he was, Jeremy was like, had this wall of stereotypes that was trying to crush him every single stage. And he gets to, so as Joe Lacob is like, we're going to sign him. Like we did, you know, like, and everybody on the, on the, on the, uh, on the management team is like, what are you doing? He's like, no, we're going to, we're going to sign Joe. We're, we're going to sign Jeremy. Yeah. That's how Jeremy broke into the league is because there was one guy who was in this position of power. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to say, yeah. yeah. No, no, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, because I know where you're going. Uh, obviously, I've seen yeah. the film and I know the story. I'm gl- I know where you're going with this. But even just take a slightly step back. I mean, is there ever been a California player of the year who didn't get a Division One scholarship except for Jeremy? I, I mean, I can't imagine. I don't know for right? sure, but I think that's probably the only one, right? And then, like, and then he ends up, and he's literally playing across, because I did read up, he's literally playing across the street from Stanford, right? So yeah. a, a, a Pac-10, Pac-12 school doesn't even pay attention and then and then he goes to harvard which okay that didn't help him and that only played into more asian stereotypes (laughs) didn't it (laughs) it's funny stanford we have a couple easter eggs in the movie and one of the easter eggs is the stanford logo on the coffee mug um, in that in that animated recruitment office Ah, they were the ones they kept they basically they were just lying to jeremy the entire time like we're gonna offer you a scholarship and obviously they never did right um mm. so i mean look playing at harvard worked right well, because, indeed yeah yeah i mean he, he he ends up not just playing i mean he plays division one basketball that's how i first i mean i'm from connecticut so like right you know uconn basketball is like religion and right. he his junior year he goes into he goes right. into a uconn who just went to the final four, he drops 30 on them and dunked. Yeah. And Calhoun and is saying that he's like the best, one of the best players he's ever seen or something. Oh, is that right? I don't even know. I think, I don't even I think, the, I think there's a quote from Calhoun saying, I've seen, we've had number one teams come in and out of this gym over the yeah. years and he could have <laughs> played for any of them, you know? Wow. I mean, yeah. sounds like Jim, right? Like yeah. that to me, that's how I first time I ever saw him. And I was like, who is this? Yeah. This is crazy. But I never thought I would hear from him again. Right. And this is sort of like part of the whole, and you know, Hasan Minaj in the movie talks about yeah. this too. It's like this set of low expectations that we have and that's like sort of deeply embedded in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Because Hassan talks about exactly. it, how he first saw Jeremy play in high school. He was like, Who's the Asian kid with spiky hair? Yeah. 
Oh, exactly. probably. This is cool. This is cool. He's playing on an NBA court in high school, yeah. but you know, we'll probably never hear from him again. And then I see him play in college. I say the same thing. Like, who is that? Oh, I'll probably never hear from him again. Right? Like, we, so it's not just society. Like, it, it, yeah. it sort of it embeds those low expectations into you because it, it, it's trying to force you to like stay within your lane. Right. And then he comes out of nowhere. And, you know, I, it's funny. Like I'm like, I grew up a Knicks fan, but like, you know, like I'm a long time dormant Knicks fan. I'm not always a Knicks fan. Right. So like that, to see this guy don a, a Knicks Jersey, yeah. To score 38 points against Kobe Bryant in the Lakers. Yeah, so that's I mean, the thing. I mean, he, exactly. Because so he was with the – I mean, he, you know, not to bore people with the details of uh, of the NBA, but he's like in the D League. He's going in and yeah. out. He, he's not, he's being yeah. waived. He's not, he's not yeah. sticking with any team. And to be honest, the Knicks don't really – they just need bodies, right? And then yeah, no, uh, no, they have a ton of injuries. A ton, ton of injuries. injuries. D'Antoni's like, who's this – probably saying, who the hell is this Asian kid they yeah. just got for me? Yeah. And, uh, and doesn't want to play him. And then there's just sh- – I mean, something about well, – Look, you know, D'Antoni did give him a chance, right? Like, he, he did. Exactly. Like, he was like, yeah. okay, you know what? Like, Jeremy, get in there. And I think, look, all Asian people hmm. are looking for – the opportunity to just check in the game like yeah. that's the best way i can put it because right if you if you walk around in america with an asian face you know what set of stereotypes follow you like into a party into a meeting i mean even down the street you know what i mean like you know and you know that wall of stereotypes is trying to crush you i think jeremy's story just it matters so much to us because he is the greatest example of somebody who saw that wall of stereotypes we all face. Mm. He found every crack in it and he just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing mm. until it came falling down. Yeah. Like we're all looking to do that. We're all looking for that moment where we get to check in the game and prove like our, our value, prove what we're good at. Mm. And that it just, it always resonated with me that way and you know it's so funny like jeremy's such a humble dude and i obviously i can't i come from politics that's why i lived in dc i make mm. that comparison all the time to obama and he's always been like you got to stop comparing me to obama i'm like <laughs> look i'm not comparing you to the guy who won the presidency i'm comparing right. you shattering a specific set of stereotypes for your background right and and right. doing it in front of everybody which those that comparison you can make yeah. and i think it's fair yeah. and that's why the story 10 years later, it still resonates with me to the point of wonder. Like, I can't believe it happened. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, almost the way I look at Obama's presidency, like, did that happen? Well, <laughs> like, I mean, well, I, mean I, I think it's a fair comparison because I, I mean, I have to say, I was asked in 20, 2006 by uh, an intern where I worked here in uh, the UK, mm-hmm. um, can, you know, who can Obama win the presidency? And I was like, look, no one named Barack Hussein Obama yeah. is ever going to be able to win the presidency, and you know, and two years later he does it. Right. So I think I think to to break through whatever you want to call them, not even glass ceilings. I mean, you know, whatever he, they've done, to, moments. Yeah. yeah, these sort of yeah. things. I mean, I think that is a I think that is a fair comparison. And I also, I mean, can we overestimate then Lynn's importance to the Asian community? And I, another thing I've picked up on, and I maybe just my own sort of background is that. You know, I've I think sometimes maybe we also try to divide the Asian community because mm-hmm. I've thing I've thought of Lin at Lin as being Chinese American or Taiwanese mm-hmm. American. But what was interesting was to have people like uh, 
Hussein Minaj and others come on yeah. and say Asian. They too, yeah. you know, someone with South Asian roots yeah. felt some, you know, they felt this connection as well. Well, you know, like at the end of the day, like our interpretation of like Asian American identity is still so new in, right. in the United States. I think, you know, the term Asian American comes from uh, a group of activists in the Bay Area who were influenced by black power in the late 1960s. Okay. Um, and they were predominantly Japanese and, and Chinese descent from, right. you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the, the, right. the, the Gentleman's Agreement of Japan, like, like the old school yeah. immigration waves that right. were cut off by, by uh, U.S. administrations in the, like, the late 1800s. Yeah. And then after the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, you get this wave of immigrants coming from all Asian countries, India, China, um, Philippines, Korea, right? Like you, just, you get this wave of, of new Asian immigrants and they're called Asian American, which is this old school activist driven identity created in the late 60s. But mm-hmm. they're so tied. And I, I'll put myself in this category. Like we're all tied to like we know what the old country is. Yeah. Right. And like right. the family, like, like the immigrant family is very much of that old country. Right. So now we're like one generation, two generations removed from that immigration wave. We're yeah. so we're trying to figure out what this identity means. And, and what, what is the power of it? What is the, co- the cohesion of it in American culture? And honestly, I think Linsanity was a great moment in that creation of this new identity, which to me is still exciting and, and still like mm. in, the, in the framework of American identity is it's still new. And that to me is what's amazing about it because it's not sort of set in stone what it means. Um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like I talk to like people who are like around my parents' age, they will just never accept that, you know, Indian American and, and Chinese American and <laughs> Japanese American could be all in the same category, right. right? but I accept it. All my friends accept it. Who knows what it feels like in 20 years, right? Like it's right. the same thing you yeah. ask, like you ask Italian Americans from like the, the turn of the century, exactly. whether they will be identified as white, they'll be like, no way. Right. But like, look at it a hundred years ago well, from now, yeah. well, later. Yeah. So yeah. America's yeah. America's a melting pot and it's just constantly changing and identities are changing and being re- reshaped and reformed. And who knows, who knows what it looks like. Yeah. Um, but I do think that like, I like that you brought that up because Linsanity to me was a great sort of touch point for that right. identity, even coming, yeah. coming to where it is now. Okay. Well, I think that gives us uh, that gives us a good point to uh, give our listeners a, a, a early break, and we'll be right back with uh, Frank Chi, the director and writer of Thirty Eight at the Garden, streaming on HBO Max and still uh, playing on HBO as well. You're listening to Factual America. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. I'm here with Frank Chi, the director of 38 at the Garden. You can find it on HBO and HBO Max. Um, So we've been talking about uh, Jeremy Lin, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about him. But uh, are there any other... I mean, so that was... You know, it's it's not one and done. You you know, are there any other Jeremy Lins out there? Not just in basketball, but I mean, yeah. what are the ne- are we? You know, is is are there going to be Hollywood leading actors? Is that kind of you know, are these the things that you think about when you, as a Asian American uh, filmmaker? All the time. Yeah. All the time. Um, I think they're all at different stages. 
right? Yeah. Like I'm personally very um, interested in the mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. Right. Uh, right. Boston's not a city with a lot of Asian Americans. Here is the Asian American female mayor of Boston. Like that's right. an incredible yeah. story already, right? But yeah. I'm curious to see how, uh, how the future shakes out there. Um, I'm, I, I think for me, I'm always just constantly looking for places where there aren't that many of, uh, people who, who, you know, the, the, the wall hasn't been broken yet. And I think, yeah. you know, actually in Hollywood, there are a lot of Asian American actors, right. And like, you know, like all of them are, I mean, a lot of them are, are, are getting more and more, um, roles these days, which is really exciting. But I mean, the, I would say like the original Jeremy Lin, for if you're looking for Hollywood, is like Anna Mae Wong from like the 1920s, right? right? So it's, right. it's a different era. Yeah. Um, but like I'm looking at it in terms of like like music, right? I love Audrey Nuna, who's very young, who's like right. in like the hip hop R&B scene. I love her, right. right? Like just like people who who can who can get, capture captivate the attention of the whole country and you know, by extension of like Western society. I think that's like a really important point to make. Like I'm not necessarily, and we were talking earlier about Asian Americans. Like what is like being Asian in Western society for a lot of people, people who don't want Asian people in Western society probably, but for a lot of people, like, like they don't see it as compatible, which is why people are like, you're just a perpetual foreigner. You know, you don't fit in Western society. You don't look the part. Like I, I mean, Western society invented multiculturalism, which is what we're all dealing with here. There's beautiful parts of it, and then there's really ugly parts. So I think that that is why I think Jeremy's story, I mean, we've gotten so much feedback and interest from people who are Asian Canadians, who are Asian Australians, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, I think anywhere where, I mean, Asian Europeans, like anywhere where there is an Asian diaspora in Western mm-hmm. society, mm-hmm. like, one Jeremy's story reached them ten years ago, and now through this movie, you see it again. Like that's a lot of our comments on iTunes. Like, where can I watch this in Australia? Where can I watch this? And you know, like <laughs> we're we're seeing that because I think in any facet of Western society, if you've got an Asian face, you feel what yeah. the movie I think does a really good job of of, of emoting, which is yeah. the idea of belonging. The, the idea of feeling like you're a part of the society that you were raised in, that you want right. to be a part of. Um, and Jeremy is still the greatest example of somebody who just, he didn't ask to be a part of it. He took it. Right. He took it, right? He took the shot, right? We talk about that Toronto, but he took the shot. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, that's why the story, it, it resonates with with Asian diaspora folks overall. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, well, um, i I do highly recommend people check it out because it's, uh, I definitely, I, I love these films that kind of make, for someone like me who uh, just hadn't thought of it in a certain, that way before, mm. it, it, you know, I think it, it's, uh, and, and putting it in the context of what's been happening the last couple of years, I think that's, yes. uh, um, that's, that's, you've done a, done a great job. I mean, what, uh, I mean, when you first approached Jeremy, was he, I mean, was he reluctant to, to do this or was he... You know, yeah, I mean, I think I said it a little bit in the beginning, yeah. right? Like he was like, I, I was just trying to survive in the league. Right. And then I was right, trying right. to not be defined by Lynn Sanity. Right. Yeah. But look, Jeremy was also one of the first like major Asian American luminaries to speak out against anti-Asian violence yeah. when it was yeah. first starting to happen in 2020. Yeah. So 
like we all know how much this issue matters to him. And when we, when we started this project, like our, our main insistence was, look, we don't want people, Jeremy included, we don't want people to think about Jeremy mm-hmm. at the end of this movie. Yeah. And I think that that yeah. actually is true. Like we want people to think about themselves, mm-hmm. right? You know, there was a young woman who came up to me after a screening recently. She like definitely was like probably in her mid twenties or something. Yeah. And she was like, you know, I'm just thinking about every meeting I've ever been in. Yeah. Yeah. Because like when you're when you feel yeah. you have that those stereotypes following you around, they they can crush yeah. you mentally, yeah. right? And I think the other thing too is like we just this is the unintentional audience. We didn't realize we were making a movie for kids. Like, right. We, right. we thought we were making like a millennial nostalgia movie. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know? And, and like, yeah. I'll be honest, like, if we thought we were making the kids movie, we probably wouldn't have so many F-bombs in the movie, right? But like, thank God it's HBO. <laughs> well, you know, kids, it's nothing they haven't heard kids at these home. days, right? It's not <laughs> it's like, like how I was growing up. Maybe yeah. you were growing up. But um, yeah. um, it, it has been remarkable to watch kids watch it you know we did it we, we premiered this at tribeca and at yeah. one of the screenings there was this young kid sitting close to the front and you know you've seen the movie the end movie it's about anti-asian violence right he's weeping he's like yeah. no older than 10 years old yeah. and look i don't know what you were like when you were 10 but i was an idiot like i didn't know anything <laughs> i'm still an idiot but anyway yes <laughs> <laughs> but you know what i mean like like yeah, there, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, there's yeah. no movie no. unless maybe no. it was a horror movie that could make me cry Right, right. So I just, I was like, like, what has this kid seen the last couple of years? Like, mm. is he being sent to school by his parents telling him don't make a noise because they're going to call you China virus or Kung flu? Right? Like, you can't raise a kid like that. A kid needs to see possibility. They need to see their dreams being achievable. Yeah. yeah. Right? And Jeremy's story is still to me. And also, if you were 10 years old, or even 15, you either weren't alive or were too young to remember insanity. Right. So to right. bring this back, to watch this person do this it's a reminder to children that anything is possible especially in a society where the stereotypes that you're dealing with are weaponized against you and could turn into mm-hmm. violence at any moment you need reminders that anything is possible and that probably is the most rewarding experience for me making this and watching people watch it because you see the wonder in children's eyes these tweets we're getting since the movie came out i mean like one like we got we saw a tweet yesterday it was like watched it with my nine-year-old kid and he said the movie made him feel powerful like wow wow as a filmmaker i don't think there's more i can ask for to have that kind of impact of a story that we tell and if we people are having that reaction i mean we're we're just we're grateful and we're blessed That's that's amazing. I mean, speaking of reaction, I mean, what about some of these uh, players that you approached to be, you know, <laughs> Lin- I mean, how were they? Because that was interesting, too. I mean, what they say as well. I mean, they're very frank about what they're, how they yeah. saw Jeremy at first and how they've, they themselves, I think, have and been transformed by this. The movie wouldn't be the movie it is without them yeah. being that open and honest about it, yeah. right? I, I mean, I think that's one of my favorite parts of the whole movie is how they talk about it because they're talking yeah. about it in real time. They're like, like, I didn't really think of anything. Like this little Asian kid, like, yeah. you know, like why, what, why is he here, right? Like you're going to put him in the game? Like or, that? Or yeah. Or he's coming to get my autograph or something, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> the way they finish that story back and yeah. forth, like it's yeah. just amazing because like yeah. you, you see 
you you see the challenges that he was up against. Yeah. So I think, you know, having and, and like a lot of this too is, is like, this is the power of doing it ten years later, yeah. when you have some time to think about when we're in a very different era, like twenty twelve, twenty thirteen. Those are the last years of like the Obama multicultural era of good feelings, yeah. <laughs> you know. And we all know what happened after, yeah. and we're having this conversation now. In the world that that, that we're living in now, yeah. whereas when the insanity happened, it, it it was still in this magical, good feeling era that, yeah. at least for me, it felt like oh this is America oh we achieved this this multicultural multi ethnic democracy that we always call ourselves oh here it is especially after Obama was reelected <laughs> right like yeah. like that yeah. was the context and we were having that insanity conversation and how everybody was having that conversation and I think now. In the era of anti-Asian violence, in the era of just like, just more like hatred, and and more outright hatred. Yeah, you know, to revisit it now is just I think a lot more powerful than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, how did you get? I mean, you were saying you've already told us about how uh, uh, you were talking to Trayvon Free about all mm-hmm. this and getting it. I mean, how how did you two meet up and you get? You know, and is is he the one that really helped push this project forward? Yeah, that... you know, look, I think, um, especially when it comes to Asian American, I mean, I've I've been uh, doing like storytelling in different you know capacities, whether it's film or art, for my whole right. career, and I love it. Yeah. But most of my projects are not about Asian American identity. Right. Uh, not that I don't want to do those projects, but those projects don't get funded. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. you're just, you're sort of just like you're like oh, yeah. I mean, like I'll put it this way: if you're an Asian American storyteller you're told two things in direct comp- opposite of each other your whole life, yeah. which is the first is as a storyteller, tell your personal story because the personal is most powerful. Right. Right. Like, American society is telling you your story doesn't matter. So who cares? So what do you do? <laughs> right. Yeah. So a lot of people choose a lot of people choose. And I, I mean, as a storyteller, I was like, I'll just do stories about other folks. Yeah. I'm really good at it. I'll stay behind the scenes on it. It yeah. takes somebody to like push you, to like, especially if you're Asian American, it takes somebody to be like, see the vision, yeah. go for it, visualize it, right? And that's very much what Trayvon was like in this process. You know, he, I mean, like he, he visualized two distant strangers and he has an Oscar. I mean, talk about somebody who visualizes something and like yeah. plans yeah. for it, right? And to have him as like the support system along with Samir, I mean, Samir is like the person who like, knew all the right people to make i mean like you know like mm. you have to have two very different producers who and then have a, a director that all work very symbiotically right in, right in a way that's like ultimately very cohesive in order to make a project go and make it special and i think everybody played that role um, very well in this project but it was very much like you know you you see your friends visualize success and you start to believe Right. And like Trayvon's like, I mean, he's not like that just to me. He's like that to like yeah. Yeah. everybody in his life. Right. He, he's like the person that like he like he like make you make you visualize what it yeah. could be and then and then figure out a plan to, to, to get there. So I'm obviously I'm eternally grateful yeah. for for the way that he pushed me on this project. Wow. Um, and now now it's. Now we all yeah. get to experience it the way well, that it, I think we all wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. And as, as you were just pointing out, I mean, um, we give a little little uh, shout out to HBO because 
I'm sure. HBO. Did you, my did you have problems? Uh, did you pitch it to anyone, anyone else and just got yeah. nowhere with it? Yeah. I mean, in the initial stages when it was a concept, we pitched it to a couple of, uh, of places that we thought were like very, very good possibility of saying yes. They didn't say yeah. yes. Then we basically were like, okay, we'll just raise the money ourselves. Right. And we did. Um, and we, we raised enough money for us to do all the interviews and put together a string out. And that's when the conversation mm -hmm. with HBO began. Yeah. Um, Trayvon was, he still is working on a project, a documentary project um, okay. with HBO Sports. And um, one of the producers on that project, they were just having a conversation and he mentioned 38 at the Garden and Bentley Weiner, who's the producer at HBO, right. was like, I've been chasing this story for 10 years. I want to see this cut right now. Right. And when oh we sent God. them to cut, it was immediate. They were like, don't shot this around. And I cannot explain wow. how incredible this process has been. I'm not just saying that it's not just lip service because yeah. the movie is 38 minutes long. We made it a short because we don't want anybody to have an yeah. excuse not to watch it. It's not an eight part yeah. miniseries. It's not even two hours. It's 38 minutes. Anybody has 38 minutes. So you should <laughs> tune in. Right. Like they saw that vision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They let us tell it exactly the way that we wanted to, which is to have a larger message about yeah. this moment and this identity right now. And then they put the marketing dollars behind it. And now it's everywhere, right? Like, how could you ask for more uh, from a place that I think a lot of people are just terrified of these studios, you know, like, they, like a lot of, I think a lot of creatives think like the studios are there to kill their idea, right? And like, maybe a lot of them are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, let's keep it real. Like it's not based yeah. on nothing. Um, but for our project in this moment, I mean, HBO has been just unbelievable to us. And I'm not just saying that. Oh, that's awesome. Um, they definitely deserve, uh, deserve credit. Um, for sure. uh, I mean, I think we're coming actually coming up on, uh, we're actually about to come up on, I think roughly about 38 minutes. So maybe we should uh, <laughs> keep it like your film, but, uh, you know, the podcast is longer than the film, but, uh, the, uh, hey. no, you've, um, no, it's been, it's, it's, I've really enjoyed this. I mean, what mm -hmm. is, I mean, what's, what's next for you? Cause, uh, you've, you've had a varied background, I, I take it. Yeah. And, uh, uh, is, is it true? I get on, I get on IMDB and you never know for with these things. Were you an RGB? I was an RBG, yeah. I mean, RBG, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. RBG, yeah. Uh, yeah. So me and my friends, like, we were part of the meme. You know, it was the meme that never, never stopped. It was like went on for like seven years. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, look at uh, RBG is like a really good example of a project that I love, which is like, yeah. I come from politics, so it was like political marketing, right? right? You know, how do we make things go viral? Um, yeah. I love projects like that. I will keep on doing projects like that. Uh, yeah. But I think my main conduit of expression will be film. Okay. Um, and it will be projects like this. Uh, you know, like, I think for me, I'm just, I'm, I'm really good at strolling down memory lane. If this movie wasn't <laughs> a good example of it, I love to wax nostalgic right. and uh, making people relive a moment that they felt was magical. So I'm always chasing projects like that. Um, like it doesn't have to be Asian American, but it just right. has to be something that matters to society yeah. at large in a way that captivates people. So yeah, those will be what my future projects feel yeah. like, whether they are on screen or on your phone yeah. or on your wall. Okay. 
And do you have anything specific yet? Or are you just basking <laughs> in the? You can't say. They, no, no yeah. one can. No one can ever say. Uh, <laughs> nor, nor should you have to, because my goodness, yeah. you should bask in the glory that is uh, thirty-eight at the Garden. So, um, yeah. hey, thanks again for uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Uh, and just to remind our listeners, uh, we've been talking with uh, Frank Chi, the director and writer of. 38 at the Garden. It's showing on HBO and streaming on HBO Max. Do check it out. And finally, a big thanks to our listeners. As always, we love to hear from you, so please keep sending us feedback and episode ideas. You can reach out to us on YouTube, social media, or directly by going to our website, www.factualamerica.com, and clicking on the Get in Touch link. And as always, please remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen or watch podcasts. This is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Almo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures. Be the first to hear about new productions, festivals showing our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.